sorry to be a drama queen, Jane. <laughs> <laughs> I already know that about you. <laughs> Welcome to Literary Anything, our Marion Libraries podcast, where we talk about anything literary and literary anything. I'm Jane. I'm Paula. Welcome back. Welcome to June and our final Jane and Paula episode. Okay, I shouldn't. I shouldn't start. I won't. <laughs> I won't start. It's our forty-fifth episode. Yes, which is a milestone. But yes, it is my last run on the podcast, which I'm very, very sad about. But we won't get into that just yet. Nope. We're going to talk about the book first, shall yeah. we? Otherwise, we'll never get through it. No, okay, exactly. What did we choose? We read the space between the stars on love, loss. And the magical power of nature to heal by Indira Naidu. Would you like to read the back and then I'll do a bit of a spiel about Indira? Let's do that. For as long as I can remember, there has always been just the three of us, three sisters, only a year between each, inseparable, until my youngest sister walked out into her suburban backyard and took her life. Is it possible to ever heal a tear in your universe? After her younger sister died suddenly, broadcaster Indira Naidu's world was shattered. Turning to her urban landscape for solace, Indira found herself drawn to a fig tree overlooking Sydney Harbour. A connection began to build between the two, one with a fractured heart, the other a centurion offering quiet companionship while asking nothing in return. As Indira grappled with her heartbreak, an unnoticed universe of infinite beauty revealed itself. With the help of a posse of urban guides, she began to explore how nature, whatever bits of nature are within reach, can heal us during life's darker chapters, whether nursing a broken heart or an anxious mind. The Space Between the Stars is a heart-rending, at times funny, and uplifting tribute to love and the reassuring cycle of nature that sustains and nourishes us all. As long as you can see the stars, you can never truly be lost. So Indira Naidu, and I'm sure most people, most of our listeners will know who she is. She's one of Australia's most popular broadcasters and authors. She's been a journalist for about 30 years. She's hosted and reported for some of the country's most distinguished news and current affair programs, including ABC TV's Late Edition, SBS TV's World News, and she's currently the host of ABC Radio's Weekend Nightlife. She was the youngest ever ABC reporter when she first got the tap on the shoulder to work for the ABC, which is Ah. really cool. I remember her in the 90s. She created a bit of a storm because she was so cool and different to what we had seen before and she was really young and funky so lots of people just loved her. She's a passionate advocate for environmental and food sustainability issues. She's the author of The Edible Balcony and The Edible City which are hugely popular gardening slash cooking books. She has designed award-winning gardens and helps community groups build their own food gardens. She's a highly sought after speaker and facilitator. She's an ambassador for Sydney's homeless crisis centre Wayside Chapel and this is something I didn't know about her. Mm. In 2006 she became the media manager and spokeswoman for choice and she established the Shonky Awards. You know the Shonkies? No. The Shonky Awards are an annual media event where they name the worst consumer products of the year that are just bad, they don't work, they promote themselves as doing this and they don't. It's a pretty big deal and you don't want to be you don't want to get a shonky (laughs) and that's that's her brainchild so that was her brainchild (laughs) so her tv company fitzgerald productions she has been a consumer communications consultant to the united nations trade arm in geneva 
and a whole heap of other environmental and community organisations. In 2009, she was one of 261 candidates selected to be trained in Melbourne by former US Vice President Al Gore to conduct regular presentations about the impacts of anthropogenic climate change. And she is the sustainability curator with the Australian Garden Show in Sydney. Wow, that's very impressive. She's super accomplished and she seems like the kind of person that you'd be friends with. Right. That sounds stalkery, but... (laughs) No, I know what what you mean. mean. Some some personality, like TV presenters or celebrities, they just seem, you know, I'd be friends with her. That's how I feel about Lee Sales. (laughs) Yeah. You are a bit stalkery about that. That's why I I want to be friends with her. (laughs) Probably Lee wouldn't feel that way back, but... (laughs) So that's Indira Naidu. I'm embarrassed that... You just read all that amazing stuff about her. And the only thing I knew about her was that whenever Brett would say, indeed I do, he would say in his family, the joke is Indira I do instead of indeed I do. So for for the longest time, that's all I knew about her. And look at how accomplished she is. She is. She's amazing. And she's lived all over the world. She did her university studies here in Adelaide at UniSA. Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. She's lived in Launceston. She did year 12 in Narracourt. Oh, wow. Really, very worldly. Mm, yeah. Shall we get into the book? Yeah, let's. Yeah. So she starts off with the three sisters as little girls. And as she said, they were inseparable. They were each a year apart. Indira is the eldest, the bossy one. She calls her middle sister Dreamcatcher, the more tentative one. And then the youngest is Stargirl. And she starts by describing this game of Marco Polo that she and Stargirl are playing. Dreamcatcher, the water mm. was too cold for her. And Indira's calling out Marco and Stargirl's calling back Polo and she manages to evade her at every turn. She's really swily and slippery and fast and she just gets away from her every time. And then at one point, Indira calls out Marco and she doesn't hear anything. Marco doesn't hear anything and she starts to panic and she opens her eyes and she's looking for her. She can't see her. She can't see her. And then she realized she's played a trick on her. She's over by the back door and she's standing there laughing watching Indira floundering around looking for her and it was such a bittersweet beginning I loved the ethereal names that she chose for them it really really sets the tone and has a lovely warmth and love attached to it yeah without saying their names and this game to demonstrate how Stargirl from the beginning is the sister who doesn't play by the rules and is hard to pin down so yeah really beautiful just perfect beginning yeah it set the scene really well and I will say this up front as well we were a little nervous about reading this as our last episode because we're feeling a bit emotional anyway Mm -hmm. but we also both have a sister as well and there's a specialness with a relationship with your sister sisters are tethered together Mm. in a lot of ways from childhood you're the only one that understands your parents you can whinge about your parents to each other you can fight but you can love very deeply and hard as well so I thought it was lovely how she was able to emphasize the connectedness that the three of them had right from that little story that you told then right from the first page that's right and then she goes back and forth between the chapters and the present when Indira has learned her sister has gone into the backyard and hanged herself from the tree in her backyard which is just so heartbreaking and Indira is grappling to cope with her grief Two chapters in the past, like that one of Marco Polo, where they're little girls from South Africa growing up in Tasmania. 
And as Jane said, she's lived all over the place. By the time she's 13, they've lived in five countries, South Africa, Zambia, England, Zimbabwe, and finally Australia. They're in Tasmania in Australia. And it's really interesting because of that background and where they are, they had really eclectic interests yeah. like cricket and Highland dancing. <laughs> it's lovely to think of these little girls from South Africa really into the Highland dance competition. Yeah, and really into cricket. Yes. <laughs> Which is unfathomable but for little kids, but yeah. <laughs> and the chapters in the past not only do well painting a picture of who Stargirl was, how they grew up, what the relationships were like in the family, but it also provides a bit of comic relief, which is a really good foil to the more s somber tone of the other chapters. Yeah, there's a lot of joy in this book. Still, yeah. And those chapters really, it sings it out loud, the joy of the girl's childhood and their relationship. Absolutely. And you can imagine Indira healing from this, recalling all of these funny memories of Stargirl, like the time Stargirl pretended to be the daughter of one of the famous West Indies cricket players that was visiting <laughs> at the time, and she caught her sitting there autographing cricket balls. <laughs> or when Indira and Stargirl wanted to dress up in fancy saris like their grandmother did, so they used her curtains to drape around them and then ended up pulling the whole curtain rod down Just. off of the wall. <laughs> Yeah, there's, the stories from their childhood are, are just beautiful. They are, yeah. yeah. Really, really lovely. One of the places she finds solace is with this large fig tree at Sydney Harbour that she can see from the 13th floor of her apartment building. She goes to visit regularly and she begins to think of it as her quote-unquote tree. And it reminded me of when we went to KI recently and we were staying in this Airbnb and next to us there was this enormous fig tree and we were looking at it and my partner said to me, it's really interesting that here, like right close to the beach on this land that's obviously really sought after, that they would let this fig tree just get so enormous and take up so much space. And I was like, yeah, that is weird. And then next thing we know, we see waiters and a little like concierge and people <laughs> all dressed up walking up to it and finally we figured out that that is the I think it's called the magical fig tree or the enchanted fig tree on KI where you can actually go and have a meal um, in the fig tree <laughs> yeah we did lots of googling after you told me that and it's it is. It's enchanting. It looks really amazing. So I don't know what it is about fig trees that seem like they're magical, but certainly Indira found this fig tree to possess magical qualities that just staring at it made her somehow feel better. Mm. So she starts on this journey to engage very deeply with nature and the her immediate surroundings as a way to temper and understand and live with her grief. Mm. Do you agree? Yeah. And also nature as a pathway to well-being. Yeah. And her observations about nature are just lovely. For example, I wanted to read this one bit. 
talking about children and nature. So she says, when you're a child, you're closer to the ground. You notice what's around your feet, feathers or shells on the beach, shiny pebbles, lichen-covered sticks, tiny ants. Their world is your world. Children are more conscious of being in the earth, not just on it. They develop a topophilia or place love for these treasured spaces. They do handstands, build caves and castles, roll around and daydream in it. They develop an intimacy with these earth places that the adults in their world eventually pull them away from by insisting that they don't put things in your mouth or always wear shoes or don't walk on the grass. Eventually, the calling cards of nature, like feathers, become something removed, foreign and dirty. I love that. I love that children live in the earth. I, I loved it so much. Mm-hmm. It reminded me so much of when my son was little. And like she said, they are, they're really close to yeah. the ground. So they see all the things on the ground and trying to go for a walk with him. Oh yeah. Was so uh, at the time being a 20 something impatient, yeah. whatever, I just found it so painful that he would stop and look at every <laughs> little thing on the ground. And then now, you know, he's 20 and I read that and I feel like, oh, if I could go back there yeah. and spend an hour walking down the street with him. We park and walk to school and we park under this huge acorn tree near our place. Mm-hmm. And at the moment, all the acorns have fallen and they're on the ground. So we have to get there early because <laughs> my son, who would have been just like yours, who's only seven, we have to collect just so many acorns and they get shoved in his school bag in the special <laughs> pocket that's the acorn pocket and we have to find you know how they have like the little caps that sit on top of an acorn we have oh, to find yeah. little hats for them all <laughs> they all get shoved into this thing so I have this huge fruit bowl sized bowl of acorns at home I'm like can we get rid of these now <laughs> no, no we're just adding and just he plays with them and he touches them and he's very sensory with them. Mm, tactile, yeah. yeah. I'm just like, oh, I'm a bit the same. I'm like, really? <laughs> we need more? Do we need to scrub around on the ground for these? <laughs> yeah. And he's like, he's like, oh, look at this one. This one's really smooth. And oh, look at this one. It's got a crack in it. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's go. <laughs> also, when your children are young like that, it reminds you of when you were young yeah. and how you used to, like, oh, shells. I had a oh, thing. Yeah. When I would come to visit my gran in Australia, because I was, you know, in Canada, and the shells that I would find on the beach here were just (laughs) completely... Actually, that's still the case. Now, I just had to say, my partner, Brett, was the first person I knew who told me that if he didn't regularly spend time in nature, he would start to feel stressed out. Mm. And I feel like these days that concept is more widely talked about and accepted. Like, uh, have you heard of this Japanese concept called shinin-yoku, which means forest bathing? I was going to say, you're about to say forest (laughs) bathing. Yes, I am familiar with that. And I just think it's the most wonderful concept Sarah Wilson's book, This One Wild and Precious Life, she's got a whole section on forest bathing and it's just, it's magic. Wow. I felt like this bit here in in Dear Naidu's book really gives you a glimpse as to why this resonates with us. She's talking about buildings and poles and concrete and that their hardness and immovability disturbs us at our very core. That's why, in contrast, we can look at clouds, sunsets, bodies of water, or a forest seemingly for hours. Their subtle changes hypnotize us into states of calm and bliss. Their movement is enough to engage our attention, but not so changeable as to overactivate our stress receptors. It can lead to a euphoric state where immersion in nature becomes intoxicating bliss. Lovely. Yeah, that really really resonated with me. I agree. I'm not going to call it a trend 
it's more of a recognition, I guess, about the importance of connectedness to nature and the importance to our well-being of being in it yeah and don't you think since covid yeah that's part of i feel like what's made us realize when we were stuck inside the necessity to get out for walks not just for physical exercise i mean of course that's important too yeah but for our mental health we need to see outside we need to be in it we need to touch it and feel it it's very reminiscent of phosphorescence and Mm -hmm. that whole book is about valuing nature and and the value to be had in connecting with nature really truly spending time observing touching engaging and understanding our environment a lot of reviewers connected the dots between this book and phosphorescence too absolutely this could be like a sister yeah if (laughs) yeah i mean if you liked phosphorescence if you liked this one wild and precious life this book yes it's about grief and loss but Mm. it is also about connecting with our our world and indira backs up these ideas she doesn't just present them but she has experts in the different fields of when she's talking about say bugs or trees or kites flying kites in nature she has experts or passionate advocates of each of those subjects she goes out with them and spends time and talks to them as well yeah she talks to an ant guy in great detail and there's so many different species of ants. Who Did knew? <laughs> and was Australia has the most species of ants, isn't that what she I said? Think so. I think that's what. I yeah, just remember the, the ant guys. Is it the meat ants are the most the ones you see the most? Oh right, meat ants. Yeah, why were they called meat ants? I don't again? know. It didn't. I assumed it's because they ate meat. I don't know. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. It certainly makes you feel bad about stepping on ants after it you. It does actually. <laughs> it read does. That. Yeah, and she goes on a weed walk to look for edible weeds with a specialist in that area. I really love the links and the analogies she draws. So each chapter she meets with a specialist or a hobbyist or whoever about some particular element of our natural world. She draws a really lovely analogy between her time spent with the different elements of nature and her stage of grief or how she's feeling about her sister passing away yeah I don't want to totally spoil the second to last Mm. chapter that helps her come to terms with her sister's actions I'll just say it involves a pretty almost mystical experience with an uber driver of all people and I'm not that mystical of a person but I really enjoyed the piece and closure if that's a thing you can have that she experienced from that part that that was really a lovely way to round out the end of the story it's not spoiling it to say that Indira is not better by the end of the book but she does reach a place of acceptance of her sister's death and that little story that you just referenced seems like that point of acceptance that she comes to terms with this is not a book that's going to solve things but it's a memoir almost a a love letter to her sister and I can see it as being a piece of writing that Indira's sister's family her husband and her child now have to remember her by it's full of joy it's very sad but I expected to weep my whole way through this book when I first said what do you think of this we're like oh god I'm gonna (laughs) cry and I expected to just be bawling the whole way through Mm. but I found it comforting and joyful yeah I wasn't bawling at all actually no me either Um, and we cry very easily (laughs) in books We know this about ourselves. <laughs> Except. Oh, go on then. <laughs> okay. At the risk of 
getting a bit maudlin and dramatic. <laughs> I was reading this book the week after Jane announced that she was leaving and not to equate somebody losing their sister to a colleague moving on, but I was grieving while I was reading this book about grief and just, yeah, no, I just to explain for people who don't know Jane very well, she's just a much loved member of the service and she's been with City of Marion for <sighs> over 19 years. She's been our team leader for six and she's been my manager for, is it like, Three? Something like it feels Maybe much longer than that. Something like that. And I was, of course, very happy for her when she announced that she was leaving. But reading this, I was feeling a bit sorry for myself <laughs> as well. And then I just read this last uh, little bit from that chapter we were just talking about that said, As I watched her banged up little red car disappear along Maclay Street, I feel a supernatural elation as if I'm levitating. My head is bursting with clarity. making a fool of myself. I'm no, sorry. No, you're not. No, you're not. Stargirl needed to leave this place. I know this now. She stayed with us as long as she could. So anyway. Oh, Paula. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. Sorry to be a drama queen, Jane. <laughs> I already know that about you. <laughs> anyway great book yeah it was a lovely book it was a very easy read a hard book to get through but I I encourage lots of people to read it because like Paula said grief comes in many many different forms for varying reasons yeah some very sad some seemingly minor but they still impact us that's right thank you for saying that (laughs) and I think this would be a helpful book for lots of people to find the joy still and to give themselves some solace. Yeah, and that's what Indira does in this. She celebrates all the beautiful things about her sister. Yeah. What else have you read, Jane? (laughs) Well, I listened to this book, which might have been some of my issue. It's called I Didn't Do the Thing Today, Letting Go of Productivity Guilt to Embrace the Hidden Value of Daily Life. Wow. (laughs) One of those. (laughs) One of those. And I picked this because I was desperate to find anything to just have as an audio book to listen to in the car. This was available. I was like, oh, yeah. So there's this trend, I guess, of books being written about this anti-productivity vibe in a lot of books at the moment. This is by Madeline Dore. It was released in January this year, so it's pretty new. Um, You know how I feel when the authors – it wasn't the author, I don't think, that read it, but the voice is not – right right and I think this was one of those ones just quickly didn't do the thing is a reprieve from our doing obsession designed as a companion for the days that go off track the book's chapters explore various ways we encountered productivity guilt including comparison to others striving for perfection and our great expectations to point to how a day doesn't have to be optimized just simply occupied Mm. When we take away judgment from how moments unfold, we can find our way out of the productivity guilt and step fully into our lives. So that sounds great, right? It does. It feels like we need that. We need books like that. And I'm a super perfectionistic type and it can be very hard on myself if I'm not getting things done, Mm. you know, cleaning the cupboard out, getting that made, getting this done. 
whatever. It was okay. It was. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was just okay. I think it was too long and I think it would have suited being a really long form article rather oh. than a full book. Seems really well researched, but it was just chock-a-block full of quotes. Oh. So much so that I think it took away a little bit from the flow. Some reviewers have called this book a word salad. Oh, <laughs> so okay. So that's... Not a good kind of salad. No, we don't want it to take away from the message. Yeah. Because I feel like it's a good message. It is. And I did gain some insight from a few of the chapters and I very, very much like the premise of the book. I think there might be better books to read in this genre from what I've been seeing in reviews, but it's worth a flick through, Hmm. I would say. It's one of those ones that if a chapter kind of connects with you a little bit, then listen to it but then just skip to next right. <laughs> if it's not right because you could pick up a few little bits and don't ask me what they are because I've already forgotten <laughs> speaking of sisters I just I thought oh maybe that might be a good one for my sister she's very tasky as well yeah and hard on herself yeah yeah it could be and it's quick it's a pretty quick book right and you listened to that one, you said? Yes, I right. did. Yeah, right. I might, maybe I would have liked it more if I'd read it. Right, then you could flick easier. Yes, and I think there were some lists. And you know when an audiobook like reads out the lists, it oh, just yeah. sounds stupid. It's a bit weird. Yeah. yeah. What have you read? Well, I read... Oh. <laughs> Do you want to have a look at it, Jane? Oh, I read yeah. um, Meshi by Catherine Tamiko Argyle. This is Catherine's second book. Her debut novel came out during the pandemic, The Things She Owned. That was a fiction book. This is nonfiction. So it's like part memoir, part cookbook. Oh. <laughs> That's my favorite combination of things. (laughs) I feel like this book would appeal to so many people. It's got so many things in it. Catherine lost her mother when she was in her early 20s. So it's about losing her mother. It's about grief. It's about fitting in. It's about culture and Japanese culture in particular, which I know lots of people Mm. are interested in. It's about being mixed race. Mostly it's about food and how food in Japan isn't just food it's tied to history tradition and ritual so if you're interested in any of those things or if you're a foodie because as I said this book is part cookbook it includes recipes then this is for you correct me if I'm wrong it's also seasonal but not in the western way that we view seasons is that right that's right I think she says it's 24 seasons that the Japanese calendar is divided up into and so the book is divided up into those micro seasons and then she matches up food and recipes with each of those seasons and it also has um lino cuts that I don't know if you can see there the the images that um Catherine created herself she did them herself yeah yeah this is a gorgeous book isn't it yes I'm going to buy it by the time this comes out we will have already had Catherine yes but (laughs) we will hopefully record it and have it on the podcast if you missed it Yeah. yeah wonderful that is gorgeous it's on the list any news well I mean I guess this won't be hot off the press news because again we are pre-recording this but the women's prize for fiction long list came out and there were a couple of books on there that we've mentioned on the podcast namely sorrow and bliss which is my favorites yeah and the paper palace which was one of my favorites yeah well head to head Paula and we'll see who's gonna win (laughs) (laughs) I don't know I I haven't read sorrow and bliss but I feel like I'd like that one too so it's pretty miserable but it's great mm, yeah really really good that's what I've heard yeah, yeah. <laughs> pick pick your moment when you read it 
What you, oh, right. Yeah. Like, like, yeah, I shouldn't have read it last week kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you're sad already, maybe right. not. Maybe not. <laughs> or uh, maybe you want to wallow and then do. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I do like to lean into the feelings sometimes. Yes, yes. Get it all out. Have you seen the previews for Conversations with Friends? <gasps> no. Looks intense. Where is that? Is that streaming somewhere? I don't know when it's coming out, but previews are happening. They're showing off my Instagram feed all the time. I'll look it up and put it in the show notes. And that's Paula's favourite <laughs> author, Sally Rooney's first. Is that her first book? It's, it's yes. arguably... It's before normal people. I know that. Yes, and lots of people love this book more than normal people. Mm. So, yeah. Right. Get on it if you are keen. Did it look good? I think so, but I haven't read it, so I don't mm. know really. But it looked kind of the same vibe as normal people. Right, which yeah. people loved. They did indeed. Mm. A couple of books coming out in June. This one is by Geraldine Brooks. Oh, yes, Year of Wonders. Year of Wonders. Which we read on the pod. That's right. So this book is out on the 15th of June. Geraldine is a widely celebrated author, Pulitzer Prize winning. This book is called Horse. Mm. And it is about horses. <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. It's a story that's told across three different time periods. So Kentucky, 1850, New York, 1954 and Washington, D.C., 2019. A discarded painting in a roadside cleanup, forgotten bones in a research archive and Lexington, the greatest racehorse in US history. From these strands of facts, Geraldine Brooks weaves a sweeping story of spirit, obsession and injustice across American history. In 1850, an enslaved groom named Jarrett and a bay foal forge a bond of understanding that will carry the horse to record-setting victories across the South, even as the nation reels towards war. An itinerant young artist who makes his name from paintings of the horse takes up arms for the Union and reconnects with the stallion and his groom on a perilous night far from the glamour of any racetrack. 1954, New York City, Martha Jackson and a gallery owner celebrated for taking risks on edgy contemporary painters becomes obsessed with a 19th century equestrian oil painting of a mysterious provenance. Washington 2019, Jess, a Smithsonian scientist from Australia, and Theo, a Nigerian art historian, find themselves unexpectedly connected through their shared interest in the horse, one studying the stallion's bones for clues to his power and endurance, the other uncovering the lost history of the unsung black horsemen who were critical to his racing success. <laughs> Sounds like it'll be good for somebody. <laughs> It's not my kind of book. No. Not I mean, you never all. know. I shouldn't say that. Geraldine Brooks, we liked Year of Wonders. Oh, I love Year of Wonders. It's yeah. one of my favourite books. Yeah, and if a writer's good, a writer's good on any topic, maybe. I can see your face. <laughs> <laughs> my parents are super into horses yeah. and my eyes glaze over whenever yes. they talk about them. Yes. Another one by a well-loved Australian author, Tara Moss, has got a new book out called The Ghosts of Paris. This is out on the 1st of June. A gripping story of secrets and intrigue set in post-war London and Paris. A search for a missing husband forces investigator and former war reporter Billy Walker to face the ghosts of her own painful past and sets her on a collision course with an underground network of Nazis. So this is, I think, Billy Walker is a character that has been in one of her other books please correct me if I'm wrong I haven't read any Tara Moss books have you no mm. but people really enjoy her yeah her writing so that's coming out first of June another one on the first of June this is called someone else's child by Kylie Orr 
a gripping contemporary novel from a magnificent new talent that tackles the almost unbreakable loyalty of female friendships, the generosity of community and the lengths we, we will go to save a child. Rem will do anything for her best friend, Anna. The news that Anna's daughter, Charlotte, has terminal brain cancer sends them on a desperate hunt for a cure and their only hope lies in an expensive European drug trial. Ren jumps on board Anna's fundraising efforts, willing to put everything on the line, her reputation in their close-knit community and all the money she can beg or borrow to secure Charlotte's place. When the local charity drive quickly becomes a nationwide campaign, townspeople start asking questions about the trial, questions Ren can't answer. The more she uncovers, the more Ren realises the truth is darker than she could ever imagine and there aren't any lines that won't be crossed in their fight for Charlotte. It sounds a little bit... Like a mix between perhaps Leanne Moriarty and Jodie Picoult. Yeah, yes. Ah. That's the vibe I'm getting from it that. It kind of gave me that Half Moon Lake. Remember that oh, book yeah. kind of vibe? Yeah, yeah. right. Mm. So there are a couple coming out in June. For next month, because Jane's leaving, we're going to invite probably a couple of people from the staff to try out the podcast and see how it goes. Hi guys, it's Paula here. Um, As you know, Jane and I pre-recorded this episode, so I'm just jumping in here to let you know that our book for July will be Beach Read by Emily Henry. So please grab it, read it, and tune in in July. I just wanted to say I have loved every second of doing this with you, even in the early days when I would and I no, I still mess up now. <laughs> Who am I kidding? I fumble over words. In the early days, I was very, very nervous about doing this. It's one of those things that, yeah, let's do a podcast and then who's going to do it? Oh, okay, I'll do it with you. <laughs> um, we worked it out, obviously, not without your amazing editing skills, of course. No one gets to hear all of the mistakes and the ridiculous things we've said to each other. We've had so many lovely comments, emails, conversations with people who listen to the podcast. They might agree or disagree with our opinions of the books or how they've enjoyed getting to know us as the podcast hosts. This has meant so much to us knowing that people are listening and borrowing and reading books, which is the entire point of all of this. And the thing that Jane and I are really passionate about. Absolutely. Of all the things I do here in my job, I would have to say that this is the thing I'm going to miss the very, very most. Mm -hmm. Thank you for being a wonderful co-host and I'm positive whoever steps in will have (laughs) as much fun and will enjoy it as much as I have. So thank you, Paula. Thank you, Jane. You did much better than I did. (laughs) 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 And thank you for listening. And see you in July. (laughs) Well, I won't. Paula will see you in July. (laughs) Bye. Okay. Okay. Here we go. Don't look at me too hard. Don't look at me. (laughs) It's fine. It's good. Look. Look at me though. Okay. (laughs) This is not the end of everything. Okay. Okay. It's the end of this bit. Okay. It's not the end of this bit. Okay. Yeah. 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 I'm still gonna message you pictures of my nails and say. What is Sarah's nails looking like and can I copy them? <laughs> what are you reading? This is a great book. Good. Yes. That's still going to happen. So see, there's no need to be okay. worried. I'm fine. Everyone's fine. fine. Everyone's good. It's not sad at all.